Amen. I love that last line from Romans 4. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. This morning we, or this evening, we will be um, back in Mark, Mark chapter 14. Please turn your Bibles uh, to Mark 14. We'll be uh, reading beginning in verse 53. Seems like we've been in Mark 14 for a while, um, and, and we have. It's a long chapter, and um, it, is, uh, it began with, if you'll recall, with the anointing of Jesus by um, the grateful woman in the house of Simon the leper. This chapter has included the Lord's Supper, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the agony that Christ faced in the garden, his desertion by the disciples as he faces the cross and as he faces the, the wrath of God upon sinners. But there's something that I want to call your attention to briefly before you read our text. That is in the opening verses of Mark 14. Um, and it, there we see a clear indication of the desire of the Jewish leaders. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So we see very plainly in the opening verses of this chapter from many weeks ago when we considered uh, this, that part of this chapter that the, the chief priests and the scribes had the intention to kill Jesus. And what we'll see here as we see Jesus before the council, his trial, um, we'll see them trying to figure out a way to bring that to pass. So those two days have passed, and we are now in really the, the midst of Passion Week. So let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that it would be the sword that you tell us that it is, that, Lord, it is uh, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord God, we need your word. And Lord, it is, it is a dreadful thing to, to think about what your word does. But Lord, we know that, that you are merciful, Lord, and what your word does we need. So Lord, please wield your sword tonight. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open and eager to receive it, Lord, because your word is for us. It is alive. It is speaking tonight. And we thank you for that. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark fourteen, fifty-three, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. 
Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. There is something dreadful, yet sometimes fascinating, about a thunderstorm. We had one roll through, and, and perhaps some of you sustained limb damage or, or, or something, some damage from the wind, from the thunderstorm that, that rolled through. But you might enjoy watching one develop. And I, I find it somewhat fascinating to see a thunderstorm develop on a warm summer afternoon. It might start with the sun being obscured, and then you see the gathering clouds. You might notice how in a matter of moments, the wind direction changes. The temperature may cool off. The wind picks up speed. You, you see the clouds going from simply overcast to, to rolling and, and sometimes boiling in the sky and looking rather ominous, and you see lightning and you hear thunder and the rain comes and you go in for shelter and you wonder how bad this thunderstorm is going to be. We have said for several sermons as we have been building up through this Passion Week that there's a storm brewing between the leadership of the Jews and Jesus Christ because Mark has established early on in his gospel that Christ is one with authority. He taught them as one who had authority. And that shook these men to the core because they wanted the authority. And yet Christ spoke as one who did have authority. Jesus here in our text has been arrested. And he's now dragged before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. The wind has changed. The storm is growing. And it appears that they, the Jewish leaders, are in control. Here is the one they hated. Here is the one that threatened their authority, and he's now before them. And they are standing or sitting over him in their minds as judges over him. If they can just get their witnesses to agree, they are seeking to at least appear to have a reasonable court hearing to carry out their desires to destroy him. So as we look at this text, I want us to see it under four headings. The false witnesses the faithful witness, which of course is Jesus Christ, the fearless declaration by Christ, and then the final condemnation. Now we want to look at these witnesses, but we first have to consider them in the context of the whole court scene. Now much is often written about this, this court scene. Um, many commentators point to the fact that the Sanhedrin were not to meet at night, only in the daytime. This is, if you'll recall, this is following Christ's time in the garden. It's late at night, maybe the wee early hours of the morning. And Judas betrays the Lord Jesus. And then they assemble the Sanhedrin in what appears in, in our reading in a few moments. Well, the Sanhedrin was not a small body of men. And so it's, it's likely that this was planned, and maybe it took an hour or two to, to gather everyone together. We don't really know, but we know that this is night, um, and the Sanhedrin was, was not to meet at night. 
They were not to meet on the Sabbath or on the eve of the Sabbath. Um, We also know that if a person was to be convicted of a capital crime, that the Sanhedrin would meet again the following day to confirm that sentence upon them um, to make sure that that there was not rash and, and sudden verdicts brought upon the accused. Now, other commentators are more favorable towards this scene um, and say, well, this really wasn't an official court hearing. It was more like a grand jury that, that tried to establish whether or not there was enough evidence to, to push it on over to the Roman side of the court. So, so whatever side you're on, it's clear the intentions of the Sanhedrin. It's clear what the Jewish leaders wanted to do with Jesus. They wanted to kill him, and, and that was their sole purpose. They had already announced the verdict in a sense in the opening verses, and again in, I believe it's verse 55, where it talks about that they, um, they, they were all about bringing the verdict against the Lord Jesus. They wanted to stop him. They wanted nothing more than to kill the Lord Jesus. And they had the best witnesses that money could buy. Now, it doesn't tell us necessarily that they paid their witnesses. We know that they paid Judas to betray the Lord Jesus. And we know that they were calling these witnesses with the hope that they could get two of them to agree. Because the Old Testament law said that that everything had to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So they had to at least have the appearance of a proper and orderly court. So they were trying to get two witnesses to agree. But these witnesses bore false witness. They broke the ninth commandment. They lied about Jesus. Well, how did they do that? They, they took his words and they twisted them. They referenced something that he said and they turned his words just a little bit. The chief accusation against him was that they reported him as saying that I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Which, in fact, was not what Jesus said. It said he said in John two. 19, we read that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In other words, he was speaking about what would happen to him. And it tells us two verses later that he was speaking of the temple of his own body. But even in that lie, Mark tells us that they couldn't find another witness to agree to the exact details of that story. See, even though the elders and scribes had no interest in the truth, they were all about appearances. They wanted to appear to be obeying Deuteronomy 19, which says what I just mentioned, that everything has to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. But they couldn't find two men to lie in the same way and at the same time about Jesus. These false witnesses failed. And then over against these false witnesses, we have Jesus, the true and faithful witness, as John calls him in Revelation. What does he do? Well, he appears to do nothing for a while. He remained silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb or silent. So he opened not his mouth. What a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. In the face of false accusations, Jesus kept his cool. As lies were broadcast, he didn't allow himself to be drawn in. If it was you or me, we would probably protest boisterously, vociferously. We would want to yell out, that's a lie! Objection! I think is what you say in court. 
we would say, that's not true. That's not the right story. These are false accusations being brought against me. But not Jesus. He knew there was a more important truth that needed to be revealed that day. And he was ready to proclaim it. I think here there's a lesson for us. That when we are accused, we need to be careful how we respond. Students, what if a teacher is unfair in their grading or how they treat you? What if you're driving on I-10? How do you respond when someone cuts you off or fails to signal? Employees, how do you respond when you feel that you're being treated unfairly in the workplace? Do you go and air your gripes about the boss to others? Now, I'm not saying we can never make an appeal. That's, that's right and just to do. But we should always do it with gentleness and humility. The Lord Jesus suffered reproach and scorn. He did not shout out his defense. He was the silent suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied him to be. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And once again, we see Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled in these moments from our text in Mark. In fact, his silence seems only to anger the high priest. They wanted to catch Jesus in his words. They'd been trying to do that since, since Mark 12. They'd been posing these questions to Jesus, trying to trap him in his words, and here he is, silent. I would think they probably would have learned their lesson because they'd been embarrassed already at Christ's wisdom in previous encounters. But here in verse 60, the high priest stands up and asks Jesus in so many words. He says, do you hear these accusations? Don't you have anything to say? And the fact that he stood up tells us that, that he was maybe signaling to the other men that it's time for a decision. We're tired of this and we need to move forward. We need to get him. We need to move forward to have a verdict. And once again, Jesus says nothing. But he knows this moment is, much, is about much more than simply defending himself against false accusation. In the battle for true superiority and authority, his, these accusations that are coming against Christ are like airsoft BBs, and he's getting ready to drop an atomic bomb on them. He doesn't waste his time answering these lies. And his further silence only causes the high priest to, to ratchet up his question, questions of him. And he asks him plainly, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus replies with his fearless declaration. And that brings us to our third point. Jesus' response, and it was a fearless declaration in the face of the high priest, the most powerful religious leader in the land. Look at his answer. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Just those first two words, I am, would have turned every head his way in those wee early morning hours. In the home of, of Caiaphas, the high priest, he uses the name, of course, for the covenant God from, from Exodus when God appeared to Moses from the burning bush, I am. Perhaps some of the Sanhedrin were waiting for clarification to see if Jesus was really saying what it appeared him to be saying. But his next words only drove them all the more mad. I think to, to further the analogy of the thunderstorm, when you're in the midst of a thunderstorm and you hear, when you see the light and you hear that clap of thunder in the same instant, 
you know you're in the thick of the storm. And here in bold, in Christ's proclamation, we have the thunder and lightning together. One commentator has rightly called Christ's proclamation here the Christological pinnacle of the gospel. And that's a bold statement. But as you think about this, I think it's true. The Christological pinnacle of the gospel. Here is Christ proclaiming his identity. Here is Christ telling these leaders in the world that his power is God's power. That he and the Father are one. He is proclaiming the glory that he will soon receive. He's telling these men, these men who thought they were the holy and righteous ones, that he is king and that he will come to judge. That's the bomb that Jesus drops on them. So what's so significant about these words? Well, first of all, we have to realize that it's a bold public declaration. Remember back in Mark 8, where we talked about the significance of Peter's words, where he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was Christ, uh, Peter saying Christ is the Messiah. But that was just with the disciples. That was just with a small band of, of Christ's followers. And after that, Jesus told them, he gave them strict instructions not to tell it to others. It was not yet time for him to be revealed as the Messiah. It was, as some commentators call it, the messianic secret. Because he was not revealing to everyone who he was. But now the time of concealment is over. And it's time to reveal to these men and the whole world who Jesus is. The second thing that's significant about Christ's declaration is the language that he uses to proclaim himself as Christ, the Son of God. See, Jesus is drawing on Old Testament texts that paint a picture for these men who knew God's law, who knew the Old Testament. They knew about the, the prophecies of the Messiah. And Christ is weaving two, in particular, two texts together to tell them who he is. Psalm 110, which is a royal enthronement song, psalm. And also Daniel 7.13, which speaks of the Son of Man. Jesus uses these two texts together. And as one commentator says, that the sum is greater than, or the, the effect of these two texts is greater than the sum of the parts, as R.T. France says. The idea of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is from Psalm 110, which is a royal enthronement psalm, as we said, pointing to the Messiah. Later verses in Psalm 110 are referenced in the book of Hebrews, which we recently read on a Sunday morning, speaking of Christ's priesthood being like that of Melchizedek. And in the closing verses, the psalm speaks of the Messiah bringing judgment upon the nations. It says, he will shatter kings on, on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nations. And Jesus weaves the references to Psalm 110 in with Daniel 7.13. Now, I hope you recall that we've talked about Daniel 7.13 before. And I, I think it, it would be helpful if we read that. So please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 as we, as we think about this term, the Son of Man. In this chapter, the prophet Daniel prophesies a vision that he has in which he sees four beasts. Now, we won't try to describe all the details of these beasts, but suffice it to say that they are opposed to God's people. They're a threat, especially the fourth beast. 
And over against these beasts is God, as, it's, as he is described in Daniel as the Ancient of Days, sitting in judgment and bringing justice and wrath upon these beasts. So look with me, if you will, in verse 9, Daniel 7, 9, where, where Daniel describes what he sees in his vision. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Moving down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see the rich imagery here of of this scene that Daniel is describing And Jesus, this should come to our mind when we see Jesus telling about himself, referencing himself as the Son of Man. This should be in our minds. Because it is Jesus that receives the glory and dominion and power from the Ancient of Days. And Jesus is saying to these men who thought they were in charge, this is who I am. Look at Daniel 7, 13. I'm the Son of Man. I am taking my throne. They thought they were in charge, but Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one that's in charge. This courtroom drama is playing out. Don't let any modern-day Aryans tell you that Jesus is not God. It's right here jumping off the page at us. And here, much to the dismay of the Sanhedrin, Jesus asserts that God's power is his power, that he and the Father share the same power and glory. Not only that, he asserts himself as being superior to the temple, superior to the Aaronic priesthood, identifying himself outside of that priesthood with this figure from the Old Testament, this Christ-like figure, Melchizedek. Jesus has already shown in the parable of the wicked tenants in the previous chapters that the current tenants of God's vineyards, these Jewish leaders before whom Christ was standing, that they will be destroyed Because they reject and kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. He cites this passage from Daniel 7, which is itself a courtroom scene. And identifies himself as the son of man, who along with the ancient of days will bring judgment upon his enemies. Here Jesus shows clearly that he is God. And that his opponents are the enemies of Yahweh. It's no wonder that the high priest tore his clothes. And and screamed out blasphemy in that moment because he knew what Jesus was saying. And if what Jesus was saying was not true, it was blasphemy. But it was 100% true. Jesus is God and Jesus is telling these men and the world who he is. If any mere man would make the claims that Jesus made here, it would have been. But he is no mere man. He is God. He is the king, he is the judge, and he will come with power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And we see here the battle lines 
could not be drawn any more clear. Here the, si- the sides are at stark odds. And I ask you, where are you tonight? On whose side do you stand? Finally, we come to this, our last point, the final condemnation. Now we see that Christ is condemned. We see that the words that he, the truth that he spoke brought anger and condemnation from those that, that thought they were his judges. The high priest and all the Sanhedrin cried out, condemning Jesus to die. They got what they wanted. They wanted evidence that would kill him. And they thought they had it. They thought they had captured him speaking blasphemous words. But it wasn't. It was true. But in their minds, it was blasphemy. And those words brought in their minds the death sentence. They thought they had evidence to bring him to death. In fact, they were so enraged by Christ's words that they lost all sense of decorum, if they had any to start with. And they began to spit upon Christ, to strike him, to blindfold him, to mock him by demanding that he prophesy as to who had stricken him. To spit upon someone is to hold them in utter disdain, of course. It's one of the most disrespectful things that could be done. But, but Jesus endured all of this, this condemnation from these men who claim to be in charge. He endured it for you and for me. And this, of course, was not the worst that Christ endured. We see, we'll see more and more as we progress through the text that more and more of his, his passion and his suffering and what he did. It says here in the, in the final verses of our text that the guards received him with blows. I, I, I just picture this, the Sanhedrin just being so full of, of contempt and wrath upon Christ that they were striking him and pushing him. And, and then the guards seemed to just join in the fray, you know, perhaps working out their pent-up frustrations, if you will, upon Jesus. The... Under the Roman law, they, they could not carry out this sentence, and so they did turn him over to the Romans to carry out the death sentence, and we'll see soon that, that he is to be tried by Pilate. And they likely justified their anger, saying, well, under the Old Testament law, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. So for them to be physically striking Christ was not necessarily out of line, according to Leviticus, I believe it's 24, And they had their own self-righteous anger against Christ. And once again, we see prophecy fulfilled. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus endured the condemnation and persecution of these men. These men who were sitting in judgment as leaders of the Jews. They brought condemnation upon Christ. And we'll see, of course, that this is carried forward. And it results, of course, in Christ's death and his crucifixion. But I hope you clearly see that while Christ submitted to that death, it is he who is the true judge. Yes, he will die at the hands of the Romans, but he is the victor. He will have the last words. And as we have said, the lines are clearly drawn here. So I ask you as I close, have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you recognized him as Lord and Savior? Have you recognized him who, as the one who is the judge 
who will come to judge the living and the dead. If not, I invite you to come to Christ today. Come to this one who did pay the penalty for sin, who completely satisfied the wrath of God upon the cross for all of his people. The work is done. You know, so many religions tell you what you need to do, but only Christianity says the work is done. Only Christ says, I've done it all for you. So come to Christ if you don't know him. If you do know the Lord Jesus, consider that he is Lord. Consider that, that upon his crucifixion and resurrection, that he is crowned with glory and honor. We should fall before him in humility, recognizing him as Lord. And we should wholly and solely follow him as our Lord and Savior. May the Lord give us strength to be obedient to Christ the Lord. Let us pray.